in the 17th century, an Irish philosopher named George Berkeley penned this statement. What is matter? Never mind. What is mine? No matter. We find philosophers throughout the history of man struggling to pin down the ears of the wind and to put collars on emotional storms in order to give to man a meaning of life beyond God's purpose. Today, on Pressing Into the Kingdom, we're going to look at God's Word to see what the Creator of mankind has to say about the meaning of life. said that the last frontier is to conquer the immaterial and to reduce all thinking, all thought, to material actions weighable, containable, and so controllable without God. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he also said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. The verses that we're talking about today in James aren't exhortations that anyone can consistently accomplish by philosophy. They're only accomplishable by the grace of God, and underneath it all, we find ourselves learning even more than we initially set out to learn when we first look at the surface of the text. James 1, 9-12 Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Man has consistently found a way to assert errant logic behind the assumption that every purpose and every ultimate meaning of anything has to be only about them. When Jesus was asked if people should pay their taxes to Caesar, 
Jesus asked for someone to bring him a coin. And then he asked them whose image it was imprinted on the coinage. And when they told him, it's Caesar's, Jesus told them, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give God what is God's. Most people break that verse up into two different parts, like God's only supposed to be getting something on the side where Jesus said, give to God what's God's. But that's a false narrative. See, Jesus was showing them and us that the method of paying taxes wasn't as important as the meaning of paying taxes. The method of paying taxes is just that. It's, it's a method of exchange that man uses to accomplish his task. And Jesus was showing them and us that the meaning is something much more important. When we consciously mean in anything we do to honor and glorify God, the meaning of giving some of their efforts and labor to a leader who was established by God was to honor God by submitting to the demand or request of a leader when that leader was not demanding or requesting anything that would dishonor God. Think God didn't establish leaders anymore? Or maybe that God only establishes the leaders that we really like? Think again. God isn't waiting on the day of an election to see who will be the next president of any country. God established Caesar. Caesar had coins made with his own image on them. God made man in his own image. We're to honor the authorities over us, irregardless of their degree of righteousness, until the meaning behind our honoring their wishes dishonors God. We're to honor God in accordance with and towards God's word in our choices of what we exchange our time, our efforts, and our substances for, in all that we do while we have breath. Because everything we have, including our breath, has been given to us by God. Rich or poor, if you're alive, you have breath. James says in verses 9 and 10, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Be it through our individual giftings or simply the ability to work, or even our inability to work, irregardless of society's secular interpretations of events or society's secular interpretations of circumstances. God is always the one who every one of us has the ultimate account with, above everyone and above everything else. We're accountable to Him, including our thoughts. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord waves the motives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, how many of us can honestly and seriously turn off the media, sit down quietly without distractions, and name off what we've done today to the glory of God? Things we've consciously thought, I'm going to do this to the glory of God. Or thought, praise you God for this and be able to count those things off on our fingers and fill up more than one hand. Every one of us today either already did or will have done more than 10 things, or have had or will have more than 10 things done for us. Our desperation for or deprivation of certain things is a gift of God, because when we do actually get those things, we're so thankful to God that we are getting to enjoy 
something that has always been or recently has become rare to us. We recognize more easily that it's a gift of God, making it easier to fulfill the command of God to glorify God even in the necessities of life. Sometimes, not getting what we think we so desperately need makes us realize we actually need fellowship with God more than that thing or that event. Since the beginning, people have traded things or services to get other things or other services. There's always been some system of trade established. In the book of Genesis, Esau, when returning from a long hunting trip, and according to him, was on the verge of starving to death, traded Jacob, his brother, who is now known as Israel, his birthright for a bowl of red lentil soup. The meaning of the exchange was firmly established in Israel's mind, but only the method of exchange was established in Esau's. Today, there's a lot of mega-millionaire prosperity pastors, and, and I use the term pastor loosely here, that prey upon the weak of mind and the desperate. People that want to escape their trouble by employing a false and unbiblical method. People that are easily made to believe that they can actually give money to God directly as a method of exchange. As though God's thoughts were just like a man's thoughts, in the hope that they would get from God something in this lifetime that's of greater physical value than what they've traded. What the mega-millionaire prosperity pastors have failed to tell these people is the lesson they've never actually learned themselves, which was taught by Christ when asked about paying taxes. God owns it all. You're just borrowing it, and God should be glorified in all of His creation. What use does God have of money? He owns everything. Honor Him in everything, and in your humility... God will give you greater things than your corrupted mind could ever even think of or ask for. Jesus told his apostles, his apostles, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Well, money's either mastered as your servant by the power of God's Holy Spirit given to us by grace, or It'll master you. And if it masters you, who gets the glory? That's right. The undeserving, illegitimate master money. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that anything done without honoring God is meaningless. Other translations interpret the same word as vanity. Both are really good translations. God made man in his image, as stated in Genesis, were not only his possession, along with all of creation, were made in his image. And because of that, we especially, us, ourselves, as mankind, but even more so as the redeemed in Christ, are to be given over, meaning fully, to him, for his use, for his glory. Which means that every gift of God, including the money given to us by God, is made to serve God through us in the power of God. You know, Adam and Eve were not told to subdue the earth to their glory. It was always to be to the glory of God. 
The greater awareness we have that the ownership of all things is squarely in the hands of God, the more we understand the meaningfulness of giving ourselves over to God. And the more we understand that our life's real currency, our life's value, is not given to us by any human being, including ourselves, the greater joy we have, no matter what amount of anything created by God that we have. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? Well, what do we have that hasn't been given to us by God? You say, well, I've worked very hard to get what I've got. Mm-hmm. Self-destruct sequence activated. Who gave you the mind and the strength to work that hard? Who created the need for the position and then put you in the position that you're in? In the country you're in? And in the decade you're in, did you decide when you'd be born and to what parents who were living in the specific country and township or village? James says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then he says that the rich man should boast in his humiliation. A lot of us would say, hey, James, uh, I think you got it backwards, brother. The poor are humiliated and the rich are exalted. I mean, just look in the streets. Can't you see that poor widow begging on the corner? She's hungry. And nobody seems to care. And can't you see the rich man walking past those old men who don't even have a home to live in anymore? While he's wearing a crispy clean suit and tie headed home to his mansion with a bag of steaks under his arm. And that woman walking with him, look close, James. That dress she's wearing costs more than a full year's income for most of the people that neither one of them will even look at. Okay, James, look down the street, over there at those construction sites, at these businesses along this busy road. Can't you see that the workers are dirty, their hair's a mess, and the bosses? clean as a whistle, and they're well-groomed. Well, James goes on to say that our lives, our value, isn't actually about the amount of money we have, our titles, or the amount or perceived quality of the possessions or even the physical appearance that we have. The most important part of our existence on earth is how we use and perceive the time and the resources given to us by God while we're here. James, in saying in the last part of verse 10 and in verse 11, that the sun rises up and scorches the flowers. You know, the flowers? The things that we perceive as more beautiful than the blades of grass? (laughs) They all wither and die. We can see there, in reminding us that all are going to die, the humiliation that James is talking about when he says the rich are to rejoice in their humiliation. Godly humiliation causes the heart to go from being haughty and proud to a place of humility. Godly humiliation is when someone who thought themselves to either be in and of themselves or thought themselves to have possession of something of greater value or that is more beautiful than others, And then that same person comes to the real understanding that God and His glory is more important and more beautiful. 
I never get tired of saying this because it's found all throughout Scripture. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Wealth, titles, and possessions are always temporary, but our souls are not, which makes our soul more valuable than any worldly possession. The breath of life that God breathed into man made him a living soul. Being made in the image of God defined man as different from other creatures. You might say, well, if that's the case, being that all men have souls and all souls are valuable, why should the lowly brother be exalted? It's a good question. Mainly, it's because the lowly brother or sister has less distractions that pull him or her away from God and is actually drawn towards God in humility and in need and devotion. Time and time again in Scripture, the blessed are those, whether they're rich or poor, who have devoted themselves to God, irregardless of what it might cost them, which is why Jesus said that it's so difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven. When someone's life revolves around and whose trust and glory is in and to riches and worldly gain, their perceived need is swallowed up in the method of getting more stuff and perishable happiness. The meaning just totally escapes them, which is why so many millionaires are miserable. And sweet Granny May on the church pew at the end over there, who drove a 1980-something boat to church and is wearing the same dress she always wears to meeting, is happy as a lark. I'll tell you this, and it's 100% for certain that the only thing that we will take with us from this earth, whether we're rich or we're poor, at the time of our departure, everything else is left behind. Our lives on this earth are a vapor compared to eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And if at the end of this life you're not headed there, you've already had your best life now. And the mercy and kindness and goodness of God will never be had by you in any way ever again. So am I saying that God sees everything physical as inherently bad and that only spiritual things are actually good? No, 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 Mr. or Mrs. Acapello. God made a physical world, and he called it very good. The fall of man, causing death to befall every living thing, and the withholding of the tree of life from mankind began when the method of attaining took a front seat in the hearts of Adam and Eve, and the meaning behind why God made things pleasurable and desirable to man took the backseat. Man was created by God to honor God in thanksgiving to God for all that God has done for man. The meaning of pleasurable and desirable things recognizes God alone as the provider. The method is just that. It's a method of attaining. In the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And because Adam and Eve chose to employ a method of attaining wisdom apart from the blessing of God by eating from the tree of good and evil, instead of telling the serpent that the meaning of his worldly plot would dishonor God, they ate and sinned against God. The tree of life, which God said in Genesis would give them eternal life, by necessity then, had to be withheld from them. James says in verse 12, 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Some scholars say the crown of life is just a metaphor for a good life in this lifetime. Well, they must not have read the book of Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus said, if you're faithful unto death, you will receive the crown of life. The crown of life can't be identical to or the same thing as eternal life, though, for several reasons. One is because the tree of life is also mentioned several times in Revelation as being in the holy city where the faithful are granted access to it. And if we recall, the tree of life is said to be what allows man to live forever, as we've just mentioned in the book of Genesis. But even more importantly, James says that the crown of life is given as a reward to those who persevere through trial, just the same as Jesus says in Revelation, in speaking to believers, if you persevere unto death, then you will get the crown of life as a reward. Eternal life is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it is a gift of God through faith, and that's not even of ourselves. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that a rich man can never get to that holy city where the tree of life is. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that a poor person is guaranteed entrance into that holy city. In fact, in the same chapter of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus says in the beginning of verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. And then Jesus says in verse 10, If you are faithful unto death, you'll receive the crown of life. It's a sad day in the church when vows of poverty are taken in hopes that we might gain anything from the Lord, to somehow think that we can force the hand of God to bless us in some way by using a method of denying the gifts he himself has given to us to build his body and to serve his people to his glory? We give up gifts that God would have blessed us with, with an actual underlying goal, to get glory for ourselves by appearing to other men as great, humble people. If you're rich, know that God's made you that way, for his purposes and for his glory. If you're poor, Know that God's not weak in his dealings with you, and that God has also made you that way for his purposes, for his glory. Neither the rich or the poor should believe that they will forever be either rich or poor. Trust God, irregardless of your financial situation. Your life as an image bearer of God has meaning way above your material possessions. Be steadfast like a train on a train track, looking to God alone when you're under trial and when you've stood the test, and it's an undisputable fact to you that you love God and trust God more than anything or anyone else. Know you're being prepared by God to receive the crown of life that God's promised to those who love Him. I'll remind you that 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Romans 11.36 says of God, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And Psalm 73.25-26 says, Speaking to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
The very first question answered in the Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up those verses, and it gives us a short but complete answer to a more important question than what's the method of getting our best life now. It answers the question, what is the meaning of life altogether? The original Westminster Shorter Catechism text of 1647 uses a question and answer type of format, and it goes like this in the very first question. Question 1. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The meaning of life could be nothing more and nothing less than our chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What you've heard has blessed you. Would you be kind enough to let my sponsors, CR101 Radio and GCS Apprenticeship Program, know? CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station. They host and broadcast lectures and sermons, my podcasts, and others 24 hours a day and every day of the week at CR101Radio.com. Grace Community School Apprenticeship Program is right now training and inspiring the next generation of Christian teachers, getting them equipped for the many tasks and the incredible honor of being a Christian teacher or even becoming an owner and operator of their own Christian school. GCSApprenticeship.com Until next time, may God continue to keep and bless you to the glory of His name.